On September 9, 1990, at around 11 p.m., EMTs were alerted to a 911 call about a man having chest pains in a house on Elm Street in Buckhead Ridge. Although first responders arrived expecting a man dealing with chest pains, possibly a heart attack, truly nothing could prepare them for what they were about to see. The first thing they noticed when they were let in the residence was the smell. An intense, sickly, putrid odor hung heavy in the air throughout the entire house. The paramedics made their way to the bedroom, but instead of finding a man suffering from chest pains, they see a corpse lying on a bed. Sores cover a body which had already begun to rot. Gangrene set in so badly in one foot, it was falling off. Shocked, they step closer to examine the body, when suddenly, it opens its eyes. The man looks up at the paramedics surrounding his bed and says, Help me. Who is this man, and what happened to him? We look into this case, and the events that led up to this moment in that house on Elm Street, in today's episode of Truroki. The next day, word is already starting to spread about what happened in Buckhead Ridge. Katrina Elskin, reporter and editor at Okeechobee News, receives a tip from a clerk at the sheriff's office. I went over to the Okeechobee County Sheriff's Office to pick up the, uh, go through the daily reports. In those days, now it's all done over the internet, but in those days you physically went to the sheriff's office and looked through the paper copies. And I was going through the arrest reports when, um, one of the ladies who worked in the office walked up to me and she handed me a copy of an incident report because normally I only look through the arrest and she said, you've got to read this, you you've got to follow up on this, something's just really, really wrong here. That incident report, written by Okeechobee County Sheriff Deputy William Garrison, describes in horrifying detail the condition of the man found by paramedics that night. The bed was filled with human excrement and the man's swollen, bloated body was mostly covered with rotting flesh. His hair was long and matted against his head, and his fingernails were so long they were curling into the palm of his hand. He was transported in critical condition to Rollerson Hospital in Okeechobee, where he died a few hours later from what doctors described as a massive infection. It, it was just horrific. I mean, the the... I don't think the EMTs had ever seen anything like it. They had to actually rip the fabric on the top of the bed to carry him out in the fabric because it was impossible to take him from the bed, that 
body parts were coming off. The gangrene was so bad that they were afraid that they would lose body parts. Mind-boggling. ER doctors who are used to seeing everything, you know, paramedics who are used to seeing everything, and this was the worst thing they had ever seen. They were just horrified by, by what they've seen. I, I think some of them got sick in the yard. It just, I think some of them needed counseling. It, it was that horrible. So I took a copy of the report and I went to Buckhead Ridge. And that's really where the story started for me. The man who died that night was named Scott Mickler. He was only 31 years old. He was a quadriplegic. And he was also a millionaire. Twelve years earlier, Scott was paralyzed in a head-on collision while riding in the back seat of a friend's car in Pompano Beach. Spinal column injuries sustained in the crash left him paralyzed from the neck down. Scott hired attorneys and sued the Ford Motor Company, blaming a faulty design in the Ford Bronco he was riding in for his injuries. Ford settled out of court for $3.5 million. A jury had also awarded Scott $16 million in a personal injury lawsuit against the woman who had crashed into the Bronco, but the insurance company was appealing the judgment. Paralyzed, but a millionaire, Scott was able to hire the help he needed to live his life. That was how he met Cheryl. In 1983, five years after his accident, Scott hires a 28-year-old nursing assistant named Cheryl Crawford. The two fall in love, and a year later, they're engaged. They buy a house together on Elm Street in Buckhead Ridge. And they were married. Neighbors said when the young couple first moved into the canal front home, they had housekeepers and nurses. Those workers described Scott as being truly infatuated with Cheryl. They recalled seeing Scott outside in his wheelchair, receiving visitors. After facing tragedy early in his life, it seems Scott had carved out a life for himself. But four years after their arrival in their home by Lake Okeechobee, neighbors say the visitor stopped and Cheryl appeared to be taking care of Scott herself. Originally, they had other nurses come in. They had other, other nursing care come in. But at some point, it stopped. She stopped having the hired help come in. Then eventually, they stopped seeing him. And she started to become very secretive. And so they assumed she was taking care of him. Um, he was not being taken care of. Obvious from the way he died that he was not being taken care of. Of course, it all ended that night when the ambulance came and they took him away and then people started hearing about what was going on in that house. Neighbors in Buckhead Ridge were horrified to learn about the condition Scott had fallen into. Well, at first they didn't know what had happened, you know, and they thought, well, he had died, but he was a quadriplegic and um, you know, he had a lot of health issues, so they weren't all that shocked that he had died. But when it started to come out, uh, some of the details, and they just were shocked and saddened, and they said they, they kind of felt like 
something like that shouldn't have happened to Buckhead Bridge because they kind of take care of each other. And, you know, the kind of wish if only they'd known. How could someone let a human being get into the condition that Scott was in? How could a wife let that happen to her husband? With a quadriplegic man dead from neglect, suspicion immediately fell on the woman living with him. A month and a half after Scott's death, Cheryl Mickler was arrested and charged with abuse or neglect of a disabled person. The medical examiner's report indicated Scott had been without care for at least four to six weeks. After a long series of delays, the trial deciding Cheryl's culpability in Scott's death finally started five years later on January 31st, 1995. The public would finally hear Cheryl's explanation of what happened. She took the stand at the trial, and her explanations of the events leading up to Scott's death would leave everyone baffled. On the stand, she testified that the months leading up to Scott's death were foggy. She said she would get lost in the house, forget where she was going. Scott would ask for something, and she would go to the kitchen and forget why she was there. Defense attorneys theorized that Cheryl's confusion was due to a mold in the house, which was mentally impairing her. This, they said, was the reason Scott went without care for so long. One issue with that theory? is that the mold apparently only caused Cheryl to develop mental fog when it came to caring for Scott. She and the two dogs the couple owned were well-groomed and taken care of in the same time frame that Scott was rotting in his bed. In fact, I had talked to the person who took care of the dogs after she was arrested, where they had been put in a kennel, and said, were the dogs abused? Were the dogs okay? Oh no, the dogs were fine. I think she had had their vocal cords cut though, so that they couldn't bark. Really? But, um... Was that a normal thing back then? I don't know. I thought it was odd. Okay, so a mysterious mold caused her to forget to take care of Scott. And only Scott. But how did she not notice the overwhelming smell of decay that was throughout the entire house? Well, Cheryl said she thought it was just the garbage. She described this strange scenario where... Instead of keeping their garbage in a can by the road for pickup, she stacked it in the living room because, in her words, that was the coldest room in the house. So she assumed the smell was coming from that. When she took the stand, prosecutors questioned Cheryl on why she stopped having around-the-clock nursing care for Scott in his final year alive. She replied that they couldn't find any Christians to do the job, adding that one of the last nurses they had was, quote, into voodoo, unquote, and that she didn't want that around their house and couldn't find anyone after asking around. Despite Cheryl's insistence that they couldn't find help, many of Scott's former nurses said they would have helped take care of Scott for free if they knew what was happening. I talked to to one woman who had been his former nurse, 
uh, and who had been let go. And she didn't know why she was let go. But she said, you know, that she loved him. And if she had known that no one was taking care of him, she would have gone and taken care of him for free. You know, that she couldn't understand how he could just be left without care. Prosecutors at the trial showed that by the time Scott had died, most of the money from his accident settlement was gone. Assistant State Attorney John Pietrofiza argued to the jury that once the money from Scott's settlement ran out, Cheryl had no more use for him. A former nurse hired by the couple named Joan Anderson took the stand and testified that during the entire year she cared for Scott, she rarely ever saw Cheryl. She had suspicions that Cheryl wasn't taking care of Scott because when she would arrive in the morning to begin her shift, the bed was often soaking wet. A housekeeper named Kathy Curry testified that the only time Cheryl showed any affection to Scott was after he bought her a $6,000 bracelet. Several EMTs and hospital staff also testified on the condition Scott was in. Okeechobee County Fire Rescue Captain Nick Hopkins said the only thing he could compare it to is a call where a person had been dead for several days. Sandra Collins, a nurse on duty in the ER that night, was asked if she'd ever seen a person in that condition before. She replied, not in a body that could talk to me. Al Green, a supervisor at the hospital, told jury members that Scott kept repeating Cheryl's name as he lay dying. Over and over again, Cheryl, Cheryl, help me. On the stand, Cheryl was shown a series of pictures of Scott's body taken on the night he died. One by one, she was asked if she had remembered seeing him in that condition. And each time, she would just quietly say, no. She maintained that the first time she noticed what was happening was on September 9th, 1990. That night, she says when she went to move Scott, part of his foot fell off. But she didn't call 911. She called her parents, who lived nearby. Her parents arrived and immediately called 911 when they saw what was happening. The trial lasted seven days, and the jury only deliberated for an hour before returning a verdict. Pronouncing Cheryl Mickler guilty of abuse or neglect of a disabled adult. On April 4th, 1995, she was sentenced to 15 years in prison. At her sentencing hearing, Circuit Judge Thomas Reese described Cheryl's conduct as both extraordinary and outrageous. In his closing arguments at the trial, State Attorney John Pietrofesta said that Scott had suffered two tragedies in his life. The first was the accident that paralyzed him. The second, he said, was the day he met and married Cheryl.
Roughly 10 years after her sentence, Cheryl was released early from prison due to health issues. She passed away in July of 2018. This case bothers me for all the obvious reasons, like the idea of your body decaying as you lay helpless is just a haunting and terrifying thing to process. Also, you should know that three years after Scott died, that second lawsuit, the one against the other driver in the accident which paralyzed him, was finally resolved. Part of that money went to Scott's parents, but as his wife, Cheryl was awarded $5.7 million. She would go on to use a portion of that money on defense attorneys for her trial. Something I think about a lot with this case is, if that second lawsuit would have been resolved three years earlier, would any of this have happened? If you enjoyed the episode, consider subscribing. I know when I'm deciding what to listen to, I look at reviews, so if you could leave a review, that would help a lot too. My name is Richard Marion, and this is True Oki.